Hi guys, I hope you're having a fantastic day and I'm so excited to welcome you to this conversation with a legend. Julia Cameron is iconic in the creative space. As a writer, she's someone that I look up to in every way. As any kind of artist, someone working towards a creative endeavor, whether that's photography or dance or painting, she has been a leader in what it looks like to do creative work. In fact, I have heard so many people from so many different walks of life talk about how essential her work has been for them. And in particular, what most people are referring to is a book that she wrote 30 years ago called The Artist's Way. If you have been a listener for a while, you have probably heard me talk about this endlessly. I reference it all the time because it is so helpful for anyone experiencing writer's block or feeling like you're creatively stuck if you have sort of an inspiration in your heart but you're not really doing the work julia's julia's teaching can be such a resource to help you move past that and i wanted to do an intro to our conversation today so that you have a better understanding if you're not already familiar with her practices, her beliefs, like what she's all about, and to recommend to you for the 50th time on this show that you grab the book, The Artist's Way. The cool thing about it is that it's not a book you read from start to finish. It's a book that you read one chapter a week for 12 weeks, which makes it really bite-sized. It makes it not overwhelming because frankly, if you're a struggling creative, you don't need one more thing that you should do, right? Like you should be doing this, you should be doing that. The voice in the back of your mind is telling you all the reasons that you suck and you're never going to make it and you're never going to have anything. You're shooting all over yourself. And what's so great about this work is that it gives you something to do, but in really small bite-sized pieces. Julia joined me in conversation from her home in Santa Fe, and it was so lovely. It was exactly like having a conversation with your favorite grandma or your favorite auntie and getting a catch-up on their life, but there were some elements that I really wanted to take a deeper dive so that you understood what we're referencing when we talk about these things that are really well known amongst Julia's students, but might not be something you're familiar with if you've never heard about it before. So I'm actually flipping through my copy of The Artist's Way, which is dog-eared to hell and back and underlined and written in. And what's great is that if you get the book, they anticipate that you're using it like a workbook. So there's huge margins so you can take notes and write things. And I actually come back to this work once a year because I find it that helpful in 
you know, you pull out those nuggets that you didn't see before. I would say as a writer or as a creative, the two books that I reread every single year are The Artist's Way and The War of Art. And please, for the love of God, if you are any kind of creative and you haven't read those books, grab them on Amazon or go get them from the library. But here's just a little sample. So the book is broken down into weeks. And on week two, it gives you the rules of the road. And I want to I want to read them to you because it's a great, it's just a great mantra for any of us. It says, in order to be an artist, I must show up at the page. Use the page to rest, to dream, to try. And in this instance, she's referring to writing, but I think this is true. Show up to the canvas, show up to the camera, show up to the dance floor, show up to whatever your version of this is. Number two, fill the well by caring for my artists. So a big part of this book is digging into the emotional side of being a creative and how you can feed into that well, like how you can make sure that you're supplying yourself with ideas and inspiration, that you're feeding that, that you're practicing self-care so that when you show up to that blank page or when you show up with your camera, you're not running on empty. Most of us are giving all of our life essence to everyone else but ourselves. And even if we are practicing self-care, it feels wildly selfish to take whatever little energy that you have and invest it in a creative endeavor. You will never convince me that this isn't the reason most mothers are completely running on empty. It's not just the overexertion. It's not just pushing yourself too hard. It's that you are pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and you have no passion. You have no hobby. You have nothing that excites you, that gives you that light in your eyes. You're doing nothing that's just for you. We have to invest in this piece of ourselves because in my opinion, the creative piece of you is your inner child. It is you before someone told you who to be. It is that little girl who used to dance with abandon. It is that little boy who used to write poetry. It is you 11 years old or 15 or eight trying stuff out, stacking up rocks to make a castle in the backyard or trying to bake for the first time, or loving to color. There is immense value in doing things simply for the joy of creating something. And everything in our society begs to differ. Everything in our society says that if you can't make money off of something, if you can't receive praise for something, if you don't have fans for something, then it doesn't have value. And it's BS. It has value to you. And maybe investing in the creative endeavor, maybe you become wildly successful as an artist. Or maybe you just become happier. Maybe you show the people around you, maybe you show your children what it looks to live a beautiful, fulfilled life. 
The third rule of the road is to set small and gentle goals, and here's the key, meet them. To set small, gentle goals and actually meet them. If you feel like you're struggling to keep the promises you make to yourself in any endeavor in your life, this is a beautiful piece of advice. Set small, gentle goals and achieve them. The fourth rule of the road is to pray for guidance, courage, and humility. Pray for guidance, courage, and humility. Number five is to remember that it is far harder and more painful to be a blocked artist than it is to do the work. This is a resounding theme that I'm seeing come up again and again and again. I've been talking about it quite a bit on this show, and it just is sort of kismet that it's coming up again. You have to do the work. It is more painful to be stuck than it is to just sit down and write really crappy books, to write a really crappy manuscript, to paint a horrible painting, to take awful photos. I promise you, it is harder to stay stuck than it is to just give yourself permission to do things badly. Because if you want to be great at anything, you're gonna have to suck at it first. Number six, be alert always for the presence of the great creator leading and helping your artist. Number seven, choose companions who encourage you to do the work, not just talking about doing the work or talking about why you are not doing the work but to surround yourself with people, even one person, who's just doing the work. Now this is interesting because typically I would go to a place with a follow-up question. I'm always thinking about, okay, well, what are you guys asking in a moment like that when you hear a piece of advice like that? And having talked on stages to you for years, I know the follow-up question is, well, I don't have any friends who are doing the work. I don't have access to people. I, you know, proximity is power, right? We become who we surround ourselves with. But maybe you're like, I don't have any friends who are creatives. I don't have any friends who are doing that. And my answer to that is always look online, like look for inspiration in a YouTuber or look for inspiration in someone on Instagram. Now, here's the thing, though. This is potentially a controversial thing to say. But I think if you are really doing your work, you're probably not producing much content for social media. And yes, social media can be someone's work, right? It can be the way they choose to express themselves. It can be the modality that they're putting things out into the world. And certainly, I'm sure there are tons of you listening that that is a big part of your work. It's part of my work too. I can have a podcast, but if I don't ever talk about it publicly, it potentially stays very small. But I just want you to be careful with this one 
because any creative, any artist who has content to go every single day on Instagram or TikTok, assuming that that's not their, assuming they're not a TikToker, right? Assuming that they are a painter, a photographer, a writer, a podcaster, a whatever. If they've got stuff to put out every single day, either someone else running their account or they're more likely not actually an inspiration to you of someone who is doing the work. Nothing wrong with putting out content every day. I'm sure they're going to be greatly successful for the consistency. But there's a big difference between creative endeavors and marketing the thing that you made. And you have to know the difference because as creatives, it is very easy to convince yourself that you did the work today because you went onto Instagram and told people about the work. It's real. It's why in the last year, I don't post a ton. Because if I go on Instagram even to post something for myself, I end up scrolling, right? And the only time that I should be consuming content is when I've done my work for today. You know what I mean? Like yesterday, I wrote a full chapter on my book, I recorded podcasts, I did my podcast ads. At the end of the day, my brain was mush. I went onto Instagram. I was just like, oh, I'm gonna go consume content from other people, which is amazing. It always lifts my heart. I've got my feed really dialed in. There's lots of fun stuff that I see. But I just don't want you to get that twisted. If you wanna surround yourself with people who are actually doing the work, I think you will be far better off to join a group to join a club, to join something in your hometown or even online, just not in the social media space where people meet and talk about that. That's how you meet friends. Like you join a woodworkers association, you join your local writing club, you join your songwriters group in your town. And if those things don't exist, you seek them out online and be really conscious of people who are doing it versus talking about it. And I'll tell you right now, the people who are talking about it are usually more fun. They're usually more exciting. They're usually more gregarious. They want to go get the coffee. They want to go whatever. And that can be exciting. That can be a treat that you give yourself after doing the work. But people who are really doing the work, it's solitary. It's dedicated. It's putting your head down. If you can't access that in your town, read biographies. Read biographies of, of people that you admire and hear the stories about what that looked like. I'm reading the most amazing book right now about it's nonfiction and it's the history of the West being settled. And the characters in it are just incredible. And I'm so inspired by, I mean, if you know anything about what it was like to settle the West. And I mean, everybody, the people who immigrated from one side of the country to the other. And I say immigrated because when people were coming across on the wagon train, they were going to another country, right? When you're going to Oregon territory, like it was a whole different thing because the US wasn't as big as it is today. You look at the indigenous people and First Nation people who are struggling with what it looks like to have someone come in and destroy their land and give them sickness and 
you're looking at all of these stories of people who are encountering almost on a daily basis just the hardest conditions a great example if you if you watch i don't know if you guys are into yellowstone but if you watch 1883 that's a really good example of i mean no matter what those people do every single day something's trying to kill them and i know this sounds silly but it for me i'm like god this is such a beautiful example of like solve the problem in front of you do one thing at a time take it in bite-sized pieces first survive the tornado then round up the cattle then figure out how we're gonna get the rest of the way with only six wagons like i'm literally telling you the plot line of that show but it's true if you can't find inspiration in your town or around you right now find it in the pages of a book find it in a podcast find it somewhere but just be careful about finding it on social social media is not designed for you to take inspiration and bounce Every single smart, technologically savvy person who works in social media has created this to distract you and to keep you engaged for as long as they possibly can. You'll hear Julia say this in the interview. She has written, uh, I can't even remember the number, the amount of books she's written is absolutely bananas. And when people ask her how she can possibly be so prolific, she's like, oh, I don't go on the internet and I don't watch TV. And if you don't have access to these things that distract you, you'll get your work done. Number eight, remember that the great creator loves creativity. What she's saying here is that God, the universe, source, however you identify this greater thing than you, loves creativity. They have to. God could have made one kind of tree. One kind of tree, one kind of flower, one sort of grass. Nature is the most creative source ever in existence. It is constantly in a state of creation. And there are millions upon millions of species of everything. There's different kinds of sand. You're telling me that God doesn't delight in creation? She's the ultimate creator. So if you're looking around, you look at the world around you and you see nothing but this example of creation in action, that purple flower, that yellow one, that flower that eats insects, this one with thorns, every single kind of thing, you have to understand that that source would delight in whatever it is you are trying to create. Number nine. Remember that it is your job to do the work, not judge the work. Woo, yes. This is so good. It is your job to do your work, not judge your work. Y'all, I'm writing, it's gotta be, I lose count of how many books I've written because there's a few I've written and then never published. But this has gotta be 12, 13, something like that. I still, still on this latest book, every line, I'm like, this is garbage. This is a dumpster fire. I have sold 7 million books. And I still think every line I write 
is garbage, but I just keep doing the work because I know that this book, just like every other book, will not be made better on the first pass. When you first write a book, your only goal is to get to the end of the first manuscript. Just get to the end. A book isn't born in a first pass. It's born in the eighth round of edits. But you will never get there if you don't finish it. So your job is to do the work, not judge the work. Lastly, it says, place this sign in your workplace. Great creator, I will take care of the quantity if you take care of the quality. And Julia talks about that in our conversation. This is one of those rare moments I felt when I was interviewing her because I felt like I am talking to one of the wise women in our culture. And her generation is getting older and we would run the risk that these lessons would sort of be lost and that you'd have a kind of new generation of people who might be really good at putting the content out but have nothing to back it up. This woman is not just talking about how to work, she's talking about how to live. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Julia Cameron. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I think one of the things for me as a writer that is so inspiring about The Artist Way, and you have written so many books and, and all sorts of different modalities, different genres of writing, but The Artist Way specifically is this body of work that has withstood the test of time. It is still as relevant today as it was. It's got to be over 20 years ago that that originally came out. Yes, 30 years. 30 years. Did you have any idea that you were doing something we'd still be talking about all these years later when you first wrote that book? Well, I didn't really think about it that way. I thought I was writing the book for me and about five friends who were blocked. Uh, and I thought, I'll just write something that can hopefully be helpful. Uh, and what it's turned out uh, is that it's been helpful for many people. And was that the intention was to help people get past writer's block or to get unstuck? The intention was to get people unstuck. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just writers. Uh, I had a sister who was a painter uh, and she was stymied. Uh, and so I thought, well, I'll just write something that will help my sister. The intention was to be helpful. And 
were you using examples that had helped for you or were you putting out tools, this might work, this might not, or you knew for sure something like the morning pages or an artist date would be helpful to anybody, no matter what kind of creation they were working on? Yes, I. the tools are all time-tested. They are tools that I've used myself. Uh, and I think that's where the power of the book lies in sharing artist to artist. So I, I think uh, that instead of having a theory like, oh, this might work, I say, oh, I did this and it did work. <laughs> what did you discover first, morning pages or going on an artist date, or were they both around the same time period? Well, I think the very first thing I did was morning pages, three pages of longhand morning writing about absolutely anything. Uh, and I did it because I was a Hollywood screenwriter uh, and I had written a movie for John Boyd. Uh, and the feedback was, this is brilliant. And then radio silence. <laughs> I couldn't get anybody on the phone to find out what was going on with my movie. So I found myself at loose ends, alone in an adobe house at the end of a dirt road. Uh, and I thought, oh, I'll just write a little bit. Uh, and I had a daughter who was a toddler, and she seemed to stay in bed for three pages worth. <laughs> Is that really where the timing came from? Yes. Oh, I never knew that. That's wonderful. And how long have you been doing that practice now? Because I think you still do it today if I'm reading the new book correctly. Yes, you're reading the new book correctly. I do still do morning pages. Uh, and I would guess it's, I haven't counted. It's about 35 years, I think. Wow. What I find so amazing about this work is how often I hear people from every walk of life, talk about it being impactful to them. I just listened to an interview with Rick Rubin. Do you know who Rick Rubin is? No, I don't. Oh, okay. So Rick Rubin is one of the most prolific music producers of all time. And historically, he's created music with, you know, the Beastie Boys and Jay-Z, hip-hop, rock. Like, you would not associate Rick Rubin with you at all. And I just heard him on a podcast last week, last week, talking about how influential The Artist's Way had been in his career. And when it came time for him to write a book, he was like, I don't want to write a book unless I could write a book like Julia Cameron wrote The Artist's Way, uh -huh. which is just, it's amazing. Do you take in how much effect you've had or do you feel like you sort of do your own thing and maybe aren't as aware of the work and what it's still doing out there in the world? Well, I, I think it's, the answer to that is both things. I still do my work. I write plays, musicals, songs, uh, films, uh, novels, uh, and self-help books. Uh, and uh, I, I do all of this uh, sort of alone on top of a mountain, uh, with calm, uh, and I, I don't watch TV, uh, and I don't go on the internet. 
Uh, and that's the answer to, oh, Julia, you're so prolific. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you give up TV, you can be prolific. So then when I venture out, uh, I live in Santa Fe atop a mountain, uh, and I drive down the mountain, uh, and I go to a cafe, uh, and people will come up to me and say, have anybody ever told you you look like Julia Cameron? <laughs> I will say, well, actually, I am Julia Cameron. And they'll go, oh, my God, your book changed my life. I hear that sentence all the time. That's amazing. If someone has not yet read the book and they are listening to this or watching this and they're a struggling writer, painter, photographer, anything, what is the first thing that you encourage people to do to sort of get out of the stuck? Well, the first thing that I encourage people to do is also the last thing I encourage people to do, which is please write morning pages. Uh, and they are the three pages of writing about absolutely anything that comes to your mind. They're strictly stream of consciousness. You do them first thing in the morning upon awakening, uh, and they sort of give the universe a cue uh, as to where you are and what you're up to. <laughs> okay, so I think I've already made a mistake with my morning pages because I haven't done it ever first thing in the morning. I usually do it after, you know, I got the kids to school, I'm having a cup of coffee, and I sit down and write them. But do you get out of bed and that's the first thing you do? I pad to the kitchen and get a cup of coffee. From I make coffee the night before, and I put it in the refrigerator. So in the morning, I have iced coffee, and it's ready right away. Uh, and then I pad back into the living room. Uh, and I look out the plate glass window at the mountains, and I begin. And I say, it's, wow. a, it's a blue day. There's wind in the pinyon trees. It's, and it's that. It's, uh, you have this quote in The Artist's Way that I have written down, taken pictures of, talked about on the show, which is the art of noticing, the art of paying attention, that you're... I might, you tell this beautiful story. Is it your mother or your grandmother that used to journal? And she's talking about just the things that happen in everyday life, but it sort of becomes this beautiful poem of, of existence. Yes. Morning pages do become, a, quote, a beautiful poem of, ex of existence. But I wanted to circle back. Uh, you said you waited till after the kids were off to school to do your pages. I, I don't want to sound like a Nazi, so I wouldn't, <laughs> I want to say, do your morning pages as soon as you can get to them. Okay. But it's not wrong that you're putting the kids off to school. No, that's a good, it's a good piece of advice because I definitely can write first thing. I just haven't been doing that. So that's a good little nugget for me today. Has the creative journey always been a spiritual one for you? Well, it began to be a spiritual one when I got sober. I was 29 years old, uh, and I was a helpless, hopeless alcoholic, uh, and I was riding uphill trying to be brilliant, uh, and I found myself s straining 
uh, and struggling and sort of living out the uh, struggling writer definition. Uh, and then I got s- struck sober. Uh, and my new friend said to me, well, try and let the higher power write through you. And I said, what if it doesn't want to? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, just give it a try. So I wrote a little sign that said, okay, God, you take care of the quanti- of the quality. I'll take care of the quantity. And I posted it by where I wrote. And I began trying to write from a spirit of service. So uh, I would say that it was the date of my sobriety that was the day that I began to write from from a spiritual perspective. Did you notice a shift in the success of your work once that had happened? Yes. Uh, I had a successful career before I got sober, but it was strained and difficult. Uh, And then after I got sober uh, and began trying to write from a spirit of service, uh, the writing sort of straightened out uh, and it became much more direct and straightforward uh, and hopefully a little bit humorous. Uh, And that was the beginning of my career taking off. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. I'm curious, as you describe that, it reminds me of something I've been marinating in for several months, which is this idea of going with the flow of the law of least effort, of not trying to force things to happen, but just sort of allow yourself to be guided. I'm wondering if that shift into the spiritual side of this and connecting with a higher power, if you feel like that allowed you to be guided more easily, or 
uh, basically, I'm wondering if you experience that of like trying to force something, trying, and I think we do this as artists, right? We're trying to force the success. We're trying to force the book sale instead of just kind of flowing with what the art wants to be. Yes, I think that previous to sobriety, uh, I was trying to force things. I was straining. I was trying to write brilliantly uh, and impress people. Uh, And then after sobriety, I found myself going with the flow. I had an experience of almost taking dictation uh, where I would would hear what came next. So I think we should talk a little bit about the voice because I think it's something that everybody experiences uh, and it perches on the shoulder uh, and it keeps up a a negative diatribe. Uh, And I think uh, my inner critic is named Nigel. (laughs) I picked it because it was a snooty name. Yes. And... Nigel is a gay British interior decorator, uh, and he has impossibly high standards, and nothing can ever please Nigel. But I have learned through writing morning pages to discount what the critic says. So uh, the critic will say, oh, Julia, you're boring, you're repetitious. Nobody wants to hear about the weather. Uh, And you will say, Oh, Nigel, thank you for sharing and keep right on writing. Uh, And the morning pages, in effect, miniaturize your censor. It goes from being the voice of doom uh, to being a wee peeping cartoon character. It sounds like first thing in the morning, you're sort of taking on, you know, the monster under the bed. You're taking on the voice of resistance that's trying to keep you from doing anything at all. It's almost like making your bed first thing in the morning. You're like taking on this thing that can sometimes be debilitating to us as artists. Yes, I think so. I think Nigel gets up 15 minutes ahead of me. uh, And uh, Nigel says, oh, Julia, you're boring and repetitious. And I recently had a critic say, Julia's tools are simple and repetitive. Uh, And I think it was supposed to be an insult, but I was thrilled. I (laughs) I thought tools should be simple and repetitive. Yes, absolutely. Do you still read reviews? Do you read what critics say about your work? Half of the time. I have a woman who works with me named Emma Lively. Uh, And Emma and I have been together for 24 years, uh, and she has a pretty good sense of what I can stomach uh, and what will set me off. So she'll say, oh, there's a nice piece in New York Magazine. Would you like to hear it? And I'll say yes. She'll say, oh, there's a interesting piece in Forbes. And I'll think, interesting. <laughs> what does interesting mean? Yeah. So again, I, I'm focused on my work uh, and I don't tend to, to pour over criticism. 
Do you feel like criticism is ever helpful? I think it can be. Uh, and I, I think when it is, you have an inner, aha, oh, I get it. And you don't feel defended. The criticism that hurts is criticism that's sort of vague, hostile, demeaning. When you encounter that, it doesn't do you any good to try and take it in. Yeah. The very first time I had a book come out, I it was just this little thing, and I was so excited. I was so proud of it. I self-published it because I couldn't get a publisher to take it on. And I, you know, four people read it, but the four people who read it were very sweet and gave nice comments. And I would go every day on Amazon and refresh the page to see if anyone new had read it. And every once in a while, I get a nice little review and it just perked my heart up and, you know, I'd go about my day. And then one day I went and read just a scathing review. And she said, I was trite and vapid. <laughs> I've never forgotten. And I went into a spiral. And I felt so ashamed. And I thought, oh, she's right. I'm terrible. I'm all of these things. And I spent some time kind of in those depths and then realized that I had just completely altered my reality by reading one you know, sentence from a stranger on the internet. And that was almost 10 years ago. And I've never read anything since. I have no, if people love my work or hate it, I have no idea because the intention is to do the work for me because I have the ability to make something rather than hope. Because I feel like reviews for me, good or bad, are both hurtful because the good ones feed my ego. So I just, I don't, I don't touch it at all. So I think I should tell you a story. I, I wrote a crime novel called The Dark Room. It was dark and scary. Uh, and I was sort of stepping out from behind the St. Julia persona <laughs> and, and saying, oh, let's take a look at this scary thing. Uh, and I had 19 good reviews uh, and people were just loving the book. And then the 20th review, unfortunately, was in the New York Times. And it was negative. Uh, the review, reviewer was a man named Bill Kent, uh, and he s spent the whole column on the book attacking Carl Jung, whom my detective hero loved. Uh, and evidently, Bill Kent was a Freudian. Uh, How funny. So when I got the review, I thought, oh, my God, I should go out in the street wearing sackcloth and ashes. I have been shamed by the New York Times. And then I thought, wait a minute, you have a weapon, and the weapon is humor. So I wrote a little poem that goes, this little poem goes out to Bill Kent, who must feel awful the way that he spent his time critiquing Carl Jung instead of on the book I'd done. Uh, and when I wrote this, uh, I felt myself miniaturizing the critic to a wee peeping voice. Uh, and I found myself able to sort of 
sally forth feeling like, well, I've just joined a big club of people who have been shamed by the New York Times. Absolutely. So I think humor is very important. Uh, and I, I think when you have a piece of toxic criticism, writing something funny about it uh, is the way out. So I, I think humor is a great weapon and it gives us back our power. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas the food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. So morning pages, first thing in the morning, 
taking on the critic, taking on Nigel, or mine is called Pam. Uh, so uh, I love that you also have a name for yours. But taking that on first thing, getting in touch with your higher power, whatever you believe in that says like, okay, I'm open, I'm receptive to being a channel for this creation today. I'm doing these morning pages. After someone's going through that process, they start to do this regularly. At what point do you encourage them to start, you know, creating for real? Or is it don't do anything for a while, just sit with these pages? Like what is the if we're trying to get unstuck, at what point should they take on the actual work again? So I think it's a matter of listening for a cue. You write morning pages and you write morning pages, you write morning pages, uh, and one day they suggest something uh, and you, you say, I can't do that. And you keep writing pages and then they suggest it again and you think, I can't do that. But then about the third time that they suggest it, you find yourself thinking, well, maybe I could try. Uh, and that's the beginning of a new piece of work. Who do you think they is in this scenario? I don't know. <laughs> it's real. I, I feel uh, that when I'm writing, I get guided. Uh, and I have tried to pin it down, and I have said, are you angels? <laughs> and they have said, Julia, we prefer to remain anonymous. <laughs> I love that. So I think of it as higher forces, or, you know, sometimes I think of it as the universe or the muse or Obi-Wan Kenobi. What I love about this work is, and I tell everyone that I suggest the book to, is that it is not a passive read. It is, for all intents and purposes, The Artist's Way and the new book as well. It's a guide. It's a workbook. It's a it's, it's challenging you to go do things. You're not reading a book from start to finish. You're taking it week by week. How did you come up with that as a framework? Because I feel like in the time period that this book came out, everything about from, from the content itself to the genre it was written in to the style it was written in is so unique, which is probably why it's also been so successful. But how did you know that we would, as artists, need, we need to go do something. We can't just sort of take it in and like spin out on all the ideas that we've just learned. Well, I think it came from practice. Uh, I, I would have a tool, it would occur to me, and then I would think, oh, I better go do something. So I made a practice of being very active in my art. Being active in the art, being active in the work seems so obvious and so simple, but I think most artists, if they step back, most creatives, if they are really truthful with themselves, would recognize that most of us talk about the work, dream about the work, make social media posts, we get together, we drink coffee with other artists, we do all the, we basically do everything 
but the actual work, like being active in the process. So I think that the artist's way came about to be 12 weeks because that was my experience teaching it, that it took about 12 weeks for people to sort of cook. So people will say to me, oh, Julia, was it patterned on a 12-step program? And I will say, no, it actually came from experience. So you would teach it in classes or to individual, like family and friends? I, I taught classes. Oh, I wow. taught at a place called the New York Feminist Art Institute. And what year was this? Maybe 1988. Cool. And so was it a weekly class? It was every Thursday night. Now, can you describe what kind of audience came to this particular experience? Well, they were blocked artists. They were blocked writers, painters, directors, ballerinas. They were all across the board, uh, and they were responding to an ad that said, try creative unblocking. Do you ever get pushback or did you get pushback for someone, for instance, who is a ballerina that you were telling to go write three pages every day? Who was like, I, I need to know how to dance. I don't need to know how to write. I never got pushback. Because <laughs> they were desperate? People, <laughs> yes, people were desperate uh, and willing to try anything that was suggested. And so I I didn't have people saying, oh, but I'm not a writer, because the pages could be about anything and everything. So it wasn't like they were trying to create high art. They were just doing stream of consciousness. That's incredible. What are some of the other tools in those 12 weeks beyond the pages? Well, we should talk about artist states. Now, it's my favorite thing. I, I know it's probably like, I shouldn't say it, but I actually found that more helpful than the pages. And maybe because I'm a writer and I was already journaling, the artist dates, I feel like have helped me become the person that I am today. So will you describe this practice and where it came from for you? Okay. So what is an artist date? It's a once a week, festive, solo, expedition to do something that enchants or interests you. In other words, it's assigned fun. Uh, and what happens when I teach is if I say, I have a tool, it's a nightmare. You know, I have to get up 45 minutes early and work. People will say, work. <coughs> oh, I'm going to work on my creativity. I get it. Uh, and they will readily take to artists to uh, morning pages. But then if I say, now I have a second tool, and once a week, I want you to go play. Uh, and people will say, play? What does play have to do with working on our creativity? And they become very skeptical, and they tilt their head to one side, and they cross their arms. Uh, and from the front of the room, you see a wall of resistance. Uh, and then you say... Well, we have an expression, the play of ideas, and we don't realize that it's actually a prescription. Play 
and you will have ideas. I think it's important to say that when we make a piece of art, we're sort of fishing from an inner well. We have an inner well that's filled with beautiful koi fish, beautiful images, instincts, inspirations, hunches. Uh, and we, when we make art, we sort of go down to the well and hook an image. But what happens sometimes is that we're working so flat out that we overfish our well. Uh, and then when we go back and we we try to um, to to find an image, we we don't hook anything and we become very frustrated. And this is when it's time to take an artist date, because when you take an artist date, you're replenishing your inner well. It's so good, and I feel like it's especially powerful for anyone listening who is a parent, because we're dragged in so many different directions. We're working, we're trying to hold on to this creative piece of our self-expression. We're trying to take care of these babies and keep them alive and do all of this, and you barely have time for yourself. And when you do find time for yourself, the cultural mentality around you taking that time to go to a toy store by yourself and walk around and you know see what there is to do things that spark like you said something that's festive and exciting and is enchanting is not socially acceptable in a lot of places and so i loved this call to action when i read the book for the very first time it was right in the heart of 2020. So I couldn't go anywhere. And I remember just someday we're going to be out of lockdown and I'm going to go to a museum and I'm going to go to a candy store and I'm going to go and do these things by myself, which make me feel like a little kid. And they make my imagination run away. And there's just a shakeup of regularly scheduled programming that is so helpful for me not just when I sit down to write, but also in terms of feeling a fulfillment and an ability to pour out to the people I love because I'm not running on empty. Well, that's very true. Uh, and I think uh, that it's important to say that during the pandemic, we had to sort of fall back on our imagination and do art estates within the house. So it might be, I'll make a pot of soup, I'll bake a pie, I'll paint my toenails, <laughs> I'll dance to drum music, uh, I'll, I'll make a collage. Uh, and these things fed the well. What are some of your favorite artist dates? Well, I have a very favorite artist date, which is that I go to a pet store in Evanston, Illinois, where they have a large gray bunny named George. Uh, and when I go to the store, I ask the owner, can I pet George? <laughs> and the owner will say, yes, George would like it. So I go over and I pet George, uh, and touching his silken coat uh, gives me a sense of awe 
a sense of excitement, a sense of wonder, a sense of joy. Uh, and so I think uh, visiting George is my very favorite artist state. <laughs> That's awesome. You still visit George today? Well, I haven't been back to Evanston in a little while. Uh, and uh, I have been told that the pet store has closed. Oh, no. So I don't know where George is. Oh, poor George. <laughs> do you still do artist dates today? Do you do them, you know, do you travel down the mountain and go around Santa Fe or you mostly stay, you're a homebody now? Well, I'm mostly a homebody, but I have expeditions out to a store called The Ark. Uh, and The Ark is a metaphysical bookstore. Uh, and it's filled with books like your own. Uh, and uh, it's a, a very enjoyable expedition. Uh, and sometimes I will buy a coin uh, from the Ark uh, that says peace or hope or joy or serenity uh, and I'll take the, the little coin home and I'll say, now I'm going to experience peace, hope, and serenity. <laughs> you got the perfect coin just for that. We have The Artist's Way. We have this incredible guidebook that many of us have been revisiting for years. And now you've got the new book. Can you tell us about the new book and why you wanted to create this at this time to um, take us on a deeper journey with the process? I've been writing for 56 years. I'm 75 years old. Uh, and I wanted to write a book uh, that would help people go further than the artist's way. I think the new book is very practical. It opens with the three basic tools, which, which are morning pages, artist dates, and a third tool, walking. Uh, and then it goes into uh, trying to dismantle the negative mythology we have around writing. We have a belief that writing should be difficult. And I say, no, actually, writing can be fun. Uh, and we have a belief that our writing takes discipline. And I say, no, actually, Writing takes enthusiasm. I go through a lot of tools, grabbing time. We have a mythology that says, if I had a sabbatical, then I would write a novel. And so we're always looking for this great uninterrupted swath of time, which as you as a mother might find, is gobbled up by your life. So Absolutely. I'd say... <laughs> You need to learn to grab time, which is take 20 minutes when it occurs and dash to the page. So we have grabbing time. We have something called first thoughts, which are the thoughts that come to you that you tend to reject uh, and you want to say something more brilliant. Uh, but if you take your first thought, it leads to your second thought and your third thought. 
So taking the first thought is something that we learn through morning pages. I love that. I love that you talk about the idea of grabbing time because when I was first, uh, when I had my first book come out, I started to have success as a writer. I got the question all the time about, you know, how do I set up a writer's room? How do I set up the perfect writing desk? Or if I just had a space in my house where I could write, then I would finally write, you know, the novel that's been in my head for a decade. And I always sort of chuckle because I'm like, I wrote, I still to this day write my books in fits and spurts on airplanes at the kitchen table while I'm waiting in the car to pick up my kids. Like you get it done when you can get it done or you won't get it done at all. And I think that that practice really taught me to not wait for moments of inspiration, but to train myself that inspiration was always available to me. And that habit has proved so helpful for years because at any moment, I'm like, I can at least sit and write crap. Like I'm, I, I'll write, if I write enough crap, somewhere in there is like a little thing I can turn into something better. Yes, I think that this business of grabbing time is very important. And the business of taking your first thought and putting it to the page. Uh, and that we don't need to be in the mood to write. Uh, we we find, I find, that sometimes my best writing happens on days when I feel completely blocked and I'm writing anyway. Uh, and some days my worst writing occurs on days when I feel blithe and free. Absolutely. Some of my best chapters have come out when I'm feeling frustrated that I don't have more freedom to write. Like when I'm writing and a toddler breaks into the room and I'm trying to occupy, that ends up being some of my best work because I'm under a time constraint because now I've got this sort of ticking time bomb with the toddler. And also I'm a little bit amped up because I'm like, why can't I be, you know, in Europe, like in a beautiful cafe and nobody would bother me and I just get to write all day. Uh, so it's a really important reminder to anyone listening who's a fledgling writer or even someone who's done it for a long time is just literally the best advice I ever heard about writing was from an author years ago who said, put your butt in the chair and write the words. Just sit down and trust that the words will be there, but you have to do it. You have to sit down and do it. So the new book is all about coaxing people into doing it. Uh, we have an idea that writing requires being bludgeoned. Uh, and uh, what I have found is that we can dash things off. So I've been doing this whole interview wearing dark glasses. Uh, and uh, it's not just a desire to look glamorous. It's that I had eye surgery. So I'm, I, I want to read a poem uh, that I dashed off. Oh, yeah. This little poem goes out to my glasses, who work as a shield until this time passes. Here's to dark glasses to hide my eyelashes. I feel quite glam. In fact, I am. My writing's mysterious and makes folks delirious, but simple tools are the trick that make a writer tick. 
so I share what I know and lead others so. Life without makeup is a dare I will take up. I'll just wear my shades and masquerade as a competent teacher who isn't a preacher. I have stories to tell to avoid writer's hell. I love to write, blind or with sight. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. That was really cool. Honestly, I have been, uh, I've been very blessed by this time today. And I'm grateful that you sat with us and shared your wisdom and your ideas and your poetry. I cannot tell you enough how much your work has influenced my work, but also my emotional health as I have continued to take that work on. So thank you. I know it's been 30 years since you wrote that book, but it still is very meaningful in my everyday life. Well, thank you. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.